When an infant gets stuck on the mother's pelvic bone during birth and doctors continue to assist the baby out of the birthing canal with the use of forceps or a vacuum extractor, a newborn can sustain nerve injuries if too much force is used. If your baby suffered shoulder dystocia, you may be trying to understand why a doctor would allow this to happen, and you may be deciding upon your next steps. Nope, 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 not going to do it. I'm not even going to give you, not going to mention the reference of where this online ad for birth injury attorneys came from. It, It doesn't matter, and I'm not going to give it to you. But there's so many things that are wrong with just what we just heard, and it goes on for about another 45 seconds or so, that this is what's online and readily available, okay? But did you notice something here? What this spokesperson said for this malpractice attorney's ad is completely wrong, Did you notice the words that were used? You may be trying to understand why a doctor would allow this to happen. You may be asking why a doctor would allow this to happen. What doctor, what midwife, what uh, nurse practitioner would allow shoulder dystocia to happen? Nobody allows it to happen. Did you catch that? There's power in the words here, guys, that are being used. And they're being used incorrectly to paint a picture that's not accurate. Nobody allows shoulder dystocia to happen. It just happens. The issue here is can shoulder dystocia be accurately predicted? Short answer, of course, is no. Now, I know what you're saying, and it's a great oral boards prep question. Of course, there are risk factors that increase the relative risk of this thing occurring, like fetal weight over 4,500 grams in the presence of maternal diabetes or over 5,000 grams without diabetes, previous history of shoulder dystocia, uh, some kind of pelvic outlet anomaly. Those are risk factors. But still, the positive predictive value of each of those risk factors is actually pretty poor. So the consensus, even in 2024, is that shoulder dystocia cannot be accurately predicted. So why would any provider allow this to happen? Well, because nobody allows it to happen. It just happens without permission. But this has been something that is continually in the medical literature and has gone round and round and round. Now, even though those risk factors that we just discussed are solid and are established and they're things that we look for, others have tried to come up with formulas that can better predict or act as a supplement to the prediction of shoulder dystocia. Yeah, there's a variety of these math formulas out there from the diameter of the abdomen minus the diameter of the head, that's the BPD, versus ratios of abdominal circumference over the head circumference, and all these different math models. But do they work? Are they accurate? Well, that's the focus of this episode. What are the formulas to predict shoulder dystocia. There's a lot of stuff out there in print, and it's interesting what the majority of them have to say, even after their quote-unquote reassuring findings. So we're going to cover all of this in this episode. Lots to cover here. We're going to focus on the formulas for prediction of shoulder dystocia. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Okay, first, maybe I have to apologize. 
I don't mean to come out kind of snarky against plaintiff attorneys. So if somebody's married to one, it's totally okay. Honestly, look, if there is a case of real overt medical negligence, I mean, you take off the wrong foot, you remove the wrong kidney, whatever, um, that patient should have should pursue litigation. I mean, if it was a gross medical negligent issue, there there needs to be some recourse. And that's where the law can come in. And, and I mean, my goodness, I, if you're supposed to amputate your left foot and you walk out with your right one knocked off and you still got the bad foot, uh, there's repercussions to that. So I, I think that there's a place for it. However, I remember when I was an intern, Dr. Cunningham at Parkland said, uh, there was something horrific that had happened and I'm the intern. I'm just picking up things peripherally and, and, and I mean, everybody did everything correctly. And I remember this phrase that I have never forgotten. He said, well, you know what? Sometimes malocurrence happens and it doesn't mean it was malpractice. And that's exactly it. And that's where my beef comes in. Sometimes bad things happen despite everybody doing the best that they could to prevent bad things from happening, and it still happens. Now, that I've got an issue with because nobody's perfect. We can't control everything, and stuff just occurs. That's my beef with with those kind of claims. That uh, when people go, well, how how do doctor how did you allow this shoulder dystocia to happen? Allow it like it asked for permission. I mean, come on, guys. So. That's where my irritation comes in. So I do think that there's a place for it. And, you know, again, if if somebody has a close friend or spouse or significant other, whatever, who's a plaintiff attorney for malpractice, okay. I I, I just hope that they're good, legitimate claims. On a second side note, um, yeah, me and my wife just started watching uh, a legal show. We never saw this when it was uh, officially first launch, we were catching this thing, I don't know, maybe like a decade later. But the TV show Suits, my goodness, now that that's on Netflix, we had never seen this show before. But I can tell you, my goodness, that's a pretty darn good show. Now, here's the catch. I'm sure that attorneys look at suits and go, that would never happen. Pretty much the way that physicians look at medical shows and go, "Um, why is a neurosurgeon doing the C-section? That just would never happen. But if you are legal novice and don't know the real background stuff that happens in a law office, it's pretty darn entertaining. Now, one thing I got to tell you is another reason outside of the good storylines and the drama and the 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 bliss that I have watching this of, of ignorance, because I don't know how things happen in, in, inside a law practice. I can tell you, wow, there's some pretty hot people in that show. It doesn't hurt to have attractive people in the show. Okay, now that we've totally derailed, let's get back to the message. As a quick disclosure, no, Suits is not a sponsor of this episode. 
Resnick, who contributed many, many works of literature to the field of obstetrics, said back in 1988, discussing the ability of obstetricians to predict when shoulder dystocia will occur, quote, the diagnosis of shoulder dystocia will often be made only after delivery of the fetal head, end quote. Well, See, you and I hear that as, duh, (laughs) but it's actually super accurate. Did you all get that? That the ability of obstetricians to predict dystocia will happen, yeah, once the head is out. Not before, but that makes the case that despite all of our risk stratification, which we should do, by the way, uh, and worry and looking for historical risk factors, again, which we should do, by the way, We're just not very good at predicting shoulder dystocia. That's why ACOG repetitively has said, as well as SMFM, that shoulder dystocia cannot be accurately predicted, despite what certain lawyers and people in the legal field have to say about it. Well, let me just read that directly from practice bulletin number 178 from May of 2017. Quote, shoulder dystocia is an unpredictable and unpreventable obstetrical emergency that places a pregnant woman and fetus at risk of injury. End quote unpredictable and unpreventable. Of course, we have risk factors like previous history, diabetes, estimated fetal weight. We've talked about those already. That can help us risk stratify, and those are good things. But of course, in the ever-evolving search of better ways to predict shoulder dystocia, people have come up with a variety of different ultrasonographic measurements to try to find the perfect formula that can be reproducible, applied in a general population, and keep us out of harm's way. Now, this is nothing new. However, even though this has been published many times in the past, and I'll give you some of those references in a minute, it hasn't stopped people from trying to replicate what's already been done with the same results over and over again. Back in May of 2022, which isn't long ago, in the journal Environmental Research and Public Health, yeah, it's a little weird why this is actually in the Environmental Research and Public Health Journal, but it is, researchers did a prospective observational study on this very, very topic. Quote, Accuracy of fetal bioacromidal diameter and derived ultrasonographic parameters to predict shoulder dystocia, a prospective observational study, end quote. That's the title of this May 2022 publication. And we'll get into that a little bit more as we go down into the episode. But yeah, even things like measuring the fetal biochromidal diameter. Um, okay, sure, we can do that, and it likely has some interest and some educational value. But does this work on a mass scale? That's where things start to fall apart. But I don't want to get into this publication right now. I'm just making the case here that, honestly, this has all been looked at before. Now, in this case, this used the biochromidal diameter. But people have used differences of the abdominal diameter subtracted from the bipyramidal diameter, as well as ratios of the abdominal circumference and the head circumference to try to make heads or tails, no pun intended, out of all of these risk factors. But remember, all of this has been done before. Everything that happens has happened before. Nothing is new nothing under the sun. Oh, some of you will catch that reference. No, that's not new at all. That was written a long, long time ago by some would say the wisest man who ever lived. And it goes on to say, hey, if somebody says, hey, look over there, there's something new, then your response should be, nah, been there, done that. That happened a long time ago. 
nothing new under the sun. But again, it keeps people from trying to replicate studies or outdo previous studies in this case. And it, it kind of gives the same results. Let me go back in time a little bit and talk about the different anthropometric measurements that people have used or at least have studied to try to predict shoulder dystocia. Now, to be very clear, right now, ACOG says in two of its uh, guidances, okay, the first guidance is on shoulder dystocia, the other one is on macrosomia, that our best guide right now is whether or not the patient has diabetes and whether or not the fetal weight uh, is 4,500 grams or 5,000 grams, 4,500 with diabetes, of course, 5,000 grams without, because that is right now what seems to be our highest odds ratio for the development of shoulder dystocia. And even that has poor positive predictive value. Okay. So that's where we stand. And we talked about this not long ago when we mentioned in the episode on the podcast, Uh, on screening for gestational diabetes after 28 weeks, right? You can do it. It increases the diagnosis, but does it really change outcome? No, possibly not. The only thing that maybe it's good for is to help stratify those uh, who have a new diagnosis of GDM and meet that EFW cutoff where mode of delivery would be uh, changed uh, based on that finding. Okay, but this issue of looking at specific anthropometric measurements, not just the Hadlock total estimated fetal weight of 4,500 to 5,000. Again, nothing new. This goes way back. Now, let me give you some of these articles. Then we'll jump to some of the more current ones who've tried to replicate these previous findings. Back in 1982, guys, that's what, 40 years ago? Hopewood proposed that when the transthoracic diameter was 1.5 centimeters larger than the bipyramidal diameter, that shoulder dystocia could be significantly increased. The problem was, is that the positive predictive value even back then was less than 5%. And we mentioned that in May of 2022, authors had looked at ultrasonographic evaluation of the biochromatal diameter, right, kind of shoulder to shoulder. And that was nothing new either, because Kitzmiller back in 1987 took a similar view of measuring shoulder to shoulder using CT scan. The problem is, is that it was a CT scan. And yeah, it seemed to have better positive predictive value. But the positive predictive value was only when the fetal weight was greater than 4,200 grams, which in and of itself is also a risk factor for shoulder dystocia. Cohen in 1996 also found that an abdominal diameter minus the bipyramidal diameter measurement that was greater than or equal to 26 millimeters could be, quote, highly discriminative, end quote, in the detection of shoulder dystocia, but this had limitations as well. Yeah, I really did want this Cohen publication to to give us some good info because that's something that we can easily figure out, right? Abdominal diameter, bipyramidal diameter. But the problem is, number one, this was retrospective. Second, the study was only in infants of diabetic mothers. And again, positive predictive value wasn't great. So we would be overcalling a vast majority of pregnancies, likely for C-section, who may not need it. So again, this has been looked at in the general population. It's been looked at in diabetics. And most of these, most of these are limited by small numbers. Uh, They're retrospective, although there are a handful of prospective studies, but they all have one common denominator here, that the repetitive nature of the finding is that there's low positive predictive value. 
one of the nicest reviews that took a look at uh, a lot of the data holistically was by Burkhart back in 2014. He studied over 12,000 vaginal deliveries and found that the majority of shoulder dystocia cases about 56% happen in non-macrosomic fetuses. So remember, and that's simply because what's more common, a macrosomic infant or a non-macrosomic? So just based on number of deliveries, most shoulder dystocias are going to happen in the non-macrosomic child. It's like Down syndrome, right? Yes, being over the age of 35 increases the relative risk of Down syndrome, but most babies with Down syndrome are born to women under the age of 35 because they're a greater pool who's having more children. Does that make sense? So the vast majority, 56, based on some studies, up to 65%, of, of babies with shoulder dystocia will not be macrosomic. That's why it's unpredictable and unpreventable. This 2014 review did look at the individual markers like abdominal diameter, abdominal circumference, the abdominal diameter minus the bipyramidal diameter, and the abdominal circumference minus the head circumference formula. So it took a look at different math models and found, look, there's possibly something here. This is interesting. It does seem to increase the risk of shoulder dystocia when there's a big old fat abdomen, assuming that the little head isn't because of microcephaly, right? We're, we're assuming that no congenital anomalies exist here, guys, right? And the positive predictive value may be greater in diabetic patients, but even that, the positive predictive value is still under 10%. In general, these math formulations, according to the Bookhart 2014 review, showed a positive predictive value of 7.6%. That is when the, the the answer of the difference of abdominal diameter minus bipyramidal diameter was 26 millimeters. Some have used a difference of up to 50 millimeters. I mean, that's it's a huge difference. First of all, that happens very infrequently. And most of those babies already are macrosomic. So that's the ratio is probably not necessary in that case because babies like over 4,500 grams in and of itself, typically in diabetic patients. But all to say, even if you make that difference, you increase it from 26 millimeters up to 50 millimeters, the positive predictive value still only goes to about 9%, 10% on a good day. So it's going to be way, way over calling uh, cases that probably will not happen. Okay. And so that's one of the problems here is that. Yeah, these are interesting discussions, uh, and it's something that you can definitely take a look at, especially in diabetic patients, for patient education. But as of right now, even the, the, the diameter difference of the abdominal minus the BPD of 26 millimeters or up to 50 millimeters, the positive predictive value is just not there. This 2014 publication is out of Ultrasounds in Obstetrics and Gynecology, and the title of the article is Evaluation of Fetal Anthropometric Measures to Predict the Risk for Shoulder Dystocia. And it's amazing, right? Nothing is new under the sun. We just discussed that difference between transverse abdominal and BPD that was looked at in 2014, but that doesn't stop authors from going, hey, I I think I can do it better. And that's okay. It's good to challenge previous results and see if you get something different. That's totally acceptable. Well, that's exactly what authors did in the online journal Plus One in 2021. The title of this publication is, as you would guess, quote, 
risk assessment of shoulder dystocia via the difference between transverse abdominal and bipyramidal diameters, a retrospective observational cohort study. And yeah, they found the same thing. Hey, there, there could be something here, but again, it's limited by its retrospective design. And here's what's interesting, because even in the discussion portion uh, of this manuscript, the authors state, quote, considering that the incidence of shoulder dystocia ranges from 0.2 to 3%, and the negative predictive value for this measurement, again, transabdominal diameter minus bipyramidal diameter, was 98% in this study. TAD minus BPD, that's transabdominal diameter minus bipyramidal diameter, might not be a useful and valuable screen method for shoulder dystocia. Did y'all get that? might not be a useful and valuable screening method for shoulder dystocia because shoulder dystocia just happened infrequently, thankfully. Now, notice that they gave the incidence of 0.2, which is typical. That's what most uh, published studies say. And then they said up to 3%. That's in extremely macrosomic children with diabetes, all right? Uh, And uh, I mean extremely by 4,500 grams and above where we would not allow them to have vaginal delivery anyway, or at least not recommend, right? I mean, they can choose whatever they want to, but not recommend vaginal delivery. So even in this 2021 publication, they kind of found out what Burkhardt said as well, which is, hey, this is super interesting, but maybe not applicable to the general population. And even in the diabetic population, positive value, extremely limited. Most of these formulas, guys, have to do with the ratio or the difference in the abdominal circumference and the head circumference, all right? Uh, and and they, they all have these repetitive cautionary tales on after the results. The results are always like, hey, wow, super interesting. We looked at retrospectively all the cases of shoulder stocia and yeah, their abdomens are huge. Well, it also happens that most of those babies that had huge abdomens also had an estimated fetal weight that was pretty large to begin with. So it's very hard to tease that out. That's all of selection bias or observer bias, okay? Back in 2015, in the American Journal of Perinatology, the title of this publication is Association of Fetal Abdominal Head Circumference Size Difference with Shoulder Dystocia. This was a multi-center study, okay? So you're like, all right, it's more than one place. Let's see what happens here. And once again, they did find that the larger the difference between the abdominal circumference and the head circumference, the higher the possibility of shoulder dystocia. So you're reading this publication and you're like, all right, I'm digging it. All right, I got something here. I've got a formula that can knock this out. But then they dropped the bomb. Quote, despite the increased likelihood of shoulder dystocia in cases where the difference in abdominal circumference to head circumference is 50 millimeters or more, at present, we do not recommend clinicians alter obstetrical management by performing an induction or cesarean delivery. A prospective cohort study is needed to confirm the link between abdominal circumference to head circumference greater than 50 millimeters and shoulder dystocia. Also, it's needed to determine the positive predictive value of this finding, end quote. So, y'all get that? They're like, hey, we have an interesting thing here, but we didn't have a good number of cases to even give a good 
positive predictive value for this. So um, we'll just leave it as at super interesting. And that, once again, keeps repeating. This seems to be the theme here with these ultrasonographic prediction of individual markers, their ratios, or their formula differences. That May 2022 publication that measured the biochromal diameter pretty much concluded the same thing, that, hey, this is super interesting. I think there may be something to do here, but its reproducibility is very small. At the author's state, quote, the formula presented here could help the early detection of shoulder dystocia cases and support clinical decision-making. However, due to the rare incidence of shoulder dystocia, more data is needed before its implementation into clinical practice, end quote. So let me just put this in perspective. In this study, they looked at the difference between abdominal circumference and head circumference, and they used a really big number to define abnormal, which was 50 millimeters or more. Uh, that's a lot, right? Remember the other study showed a difference of about 26 millimeters? So this was uh, almost double that, right? Just under double that. So 50 millimeters. So head circumference, not just the, the BPD, that's the head circumference subtracted from the abdominal circumference. So notice some studies have just transabdominal diameter and BPD. Some have abdominal circumference uh, subtracted uh, from that, the head circumference. And in this publication, uh, they use 50 millimeters, okay? And they're like, yep, seems to be something here, super interesting. It looks like this puts them at risk of dystocia. Podcast family, before we wrap this up, I do want to cover a prospective cohort study that came out just last year in scientific reports that is super interesting. And it just uh, it's kind of a bummer, actually, because you're like, well, uh, surely there's a better way to try to predict this. And I'm going to show you how this is why ACOG says unpredictable unpreventable. Okay, use risk factors to risk stratify, but in the majority of cases, unpredictable, unpreventable. But out of scientific reports, I'm going to give you this from February 2023, just one year ago, right? But before I do that, um, l- let me just l- rephrase and reframe where we're at, right? So we're talking about shoulder dystocia, and this whole thing started with, how can a doctor allow this to occur? Um, We don't allow it to occur at all. We don't want it to occur. It happens despite our approval. So right now, the best we can do is stick with the ACOG guidance of personal history of shoulder dystocia and do informed consent there. Look whether the patient has diabetes or not. And the overall, the total estimated fetal weight rather than the individual biomarkers. And I'm going to give you something from the college before we end as well. All right. But as we're getting towards the end, I don't want it to seem like I'm throwing out the baby with the bathwater, like, ah, this is just useless. It's no good. I think that there is some value in diabetic patients when you see a huge abdomen and a small head, again, barring some kind of anomaly like microcephaly, where it's part of patient education and counseling. And thankfully, the vast majority of the time, those things are going to match. Hey, you've got diabetes. Uh, the baby's weight is 4,600 grams. The abdomen, the baby looks like he ate a bowling ball. Uh, and his head is literally like the size of a peanut. Um, this kid needs a C-section. Okay, so they're going to match together. It's going to be a, an, an increased abdomen as a solo anthropomorphic uh, measurement 
and the total baby's weight is going to be above the cutoff. That's the majority of the cases. The difficulty comes in with what do you do when it's just a big abdomen um, and the head is a little smaller, but it's mom's not diabetic. It's under 5,000 grams. It's, you can't hold that information from the patient's part of documentation. I document that, hey, the baby's kind of big uh, based on an abdominal size, uh, but the mom is not a diabetic uh, and we're under the weight cutoff. So I think it's going to be, it's an interesting note and we're going to pay attention to labor. Labor will tell us. So if there's a prolonged second stage, if there's failure to descend, if it is um, uh, not rotating correctly. Those are all flags, just like this abdominal circumference being very large is an independent flag. Alone, it doesn't have the weight for us to, to change management. It's just one more marker. And I think that's how we should use this. It's one more marker as patient education uh, and for us uh, that can help with the decision management in the right context. But in and of itself, is there a specific formula that we can use, whether ratios or um, uh, or differences in one measurement or the other, the positive predictive value is terrible. And ACOG, ACOG has a statement on this, right? It literally is like three sentences, and I'll read it to you in a minute. But before I do that, uh, I do want to give you this February 2023 report, publication from Scientific Reports, okay? The title is Predictors of Shoulder Dystocia at the time of operative vaginal delivery, a prospective cohort study. Okay, so now let's let's say it right here. Yes, operative delivery, vaginal delivery, forceps or vacuum can be an, an, a risk factor for shoulder dystocia. Why? Because the whole reason you're doing an operative vaginal delivery, whether vacuum or forceps, is because the baby's not coming down. And the reason it may not be coming down is because his shoulders are big. So this is, it's not that it's independent of itself. It's because of the reason that you're doing the operative vaginal delivery that the risk for shoulder dystocia is there. Does that make sense, right? Because we already know, yes, operative vaginal delivery may be an independent risk factor for shoulder dystocia. So here's what these authors did. They took a look at cases of operative vaginal delivery where shoulder uh, uh, dystocia occurred and tried to find certain risk factors using multivariate regression analysis. That's what we want. Now, let me just say it, and none of the variables that were used here in this modeling were individual anthropometric, uh, anthropometric, what was that? I tell you, English is hard, guys. Anthropomorphic, <laughs> anthropomorphic measurements in none of the calculations was, a, was an individual anthropomorphic measurement used. Okay, it's not like, hey, let's take a look at the abdominal circumference and come back. No, no, no. It wasn't used. The things that were looked at were things that we already know. Uh, that's a prolonged second stage, personal history of shoulder dystocia, gestational diabetes. All of those seem to have value. However, even with multivariate logistic regression, when they popped everything in into the math and looked at the area under the curve, Listen to this disappointing fact, which validates the college that this is unpredictable and unpreventable in the vast majority of cases. The authors state after they go through all of their explanation, quote, this modeling failed to accurately predict shoulder dystocia, end quote. Wow. That's even using those risk factors. <laughs> of prolonged second stage, gestational diabetes, uh, use of operative vaginal delivery, because all these cases, of course, are at operative vaginal delivery, uh, and, and, and personal history of shoulder dystocia. These, it's just, those are good markers. They're helpful. But when you put that together as a math model, 
It Nothing is perfect. Do y'all get that? And that was just February of last year out of scientific reports. Let me read this uh, directly uh, from the, from the uh, study so I, I don't misquote it, okay? So here it is. Quote, cases were defined as women with shoulder dystocia following an assisted operative vaginal delivery Defined as a delivery that required additional obstetric maneuvers following failure of gentle downward traction of the fetal head to affect delivery of the shoulders. By the way, that definition of shoulder dystocia is SMFMs, it's ACOGs, it's the international communities, that's it. The definition, the definition of shoulder dystocia is not based on time. It's not like, oh, after five seconds, after 15. It is the need for additional maneuvers and or traction to affect delivery. That's all. So right away, we're, we're, we're talking about the same thing. They go on to say, quote, multivariate logistic regression analysis was performed to determine risk factors for shoulder dystocia. Shoulder dystocia occurred in 2.7% of the 2,118 women included. In the whole cohort, women with shoulder dystocia were more often to have a history of shoulder dystocia, and there was a significant interaction between operative vaginal delivery and gestational age and the duration of second stage of labor. Women with shoulder dystocia were more often to have a gestational age greater than 40 weeks and a second stage longer than three hours. All right, so let's stop there for a minute. Guys, we all know that the way that the the baby adds fat to the body is the same with diabetes and late term and post term pregnancies. The pathophysiology is different, um, but but they look the same. They are anthropomorphically different. They get the football shoulders both in late term and post term and in uh, diabetic pregnancies. Okay, that's why abdominal circumference by itself, guys. Here it is, and the BPD or head circumference fails. Because it's not just about a big abdomen. Remember, a big abdomen is a big abdomen. That's glycogen stores uh, in the liver. That's fat. But the shoulders would have already delivered. That's The chest comes out first in the abdomen. It's not going to be abdominal dystocia. It's shoulder dystocia. So having a, a, a big abdomen, that's why this thing fails and the positive value is so small, is, is interesting. It's, it's, it's a patient education point. But that has nothing to do with the shoulders. It's only in diabetic pregnancies and or late term or post term where the fatty accumulation, not just is it in the abdomen, but it's in the shoulders as well. That's where that propensity is for shoulder dystocia. Okay. Now, let me get back to this uh, uh, narrative and let me just, just, just knock this out so it can be done with this. Quote, in multivariate analysis, a history of shoulder dystocia was the only factor independently associated with shoulder dystocia following operative vaginal delivery. That odds ratio was 27. Guys, so if she has a, if her second stage is taking three and a half hours and she says, my previous child was a shoulder dystocia and it was terrible and you're going to go vacuum that, um, Please section that because that's going to be a shoulder dystocia. Now, even though the majority of shoulder dystocias uh, do not happen again, right? Most patients with history of shoulder dystocia do not have a recurrence, but it is pretty high based on who you read, anywhere from 10 to 15%. Okay, 10 to 15%, uh, which is much higher than the 0.3 up to 3% in, in, in the general population. So it's significantly higher. But if they have a history of shoulder dystocia, and there's a prolonged second stage. It's just not dropping. And you're going to put on a vacuum or forceps. According to this publication, that odds ratio was 27. By the way, the confidence interval was 4 to 178. 
like 178. To which I say, damn. I mean, that that's, that's, please don't vacuum that. I mean, damn, do a section. Oh, oh my God, now I'm all worked up. Let, let me just finish. Let me get back to the publication and then I'll be done. They go on to say, quote, the area under the curve for the receiver operating curve generated a multivariate model with term interaction with head station and the model failed to accurately predict shoulder dystocia, end quote. All to say is, hey, despite these the best math modeling that we have, um, it all failed. It looks like the biggest risk is personal history, prolonged second stage, and use of operative vaginal delivery. Again, scientific reports, February 2023, and the title of this publication is Predictors of Shoulder Dystocia at the Time of Operative Vaginal Delivery, a Prospective Cohort Study. Now, before we wrap this up, let me read you what the college has to say about individual anthropomorphic measurements, either in isolation or through a math modeling approach. As we get ready to end this episode, let's review once again Practice Bulletin 178 from the college from 2017. They do address the, this issue of independent markers to try to predict shoulder dystocia, all right? Literally, it's, I don't know, four or five sentences. So let me read this directly from the college. Uh, now, things can change, guys. Look, medicine, as it's our whole tagline, moves fast. Who knows? Um, maybe in six months, they're like, ah, this formula is absolutely the way to go. And if X minus Y equals Z, that's a C-section. I, who knows? I've, I've seen it all. So it could be. Although for the last 40 years, we keep getting limited by the same thing. That's very, very low positive predictive value. And it's not holding much water. And it's an interesting educational bit. So could something change after 40 years? Absolutely. Is that likely? No. But we'll see. But as of right now, as of February the 17th, 2024, uh, what we've talked about holes, okay? And it's still in line with the college as stated in Practice Bulletin 178 on shoulder dystocia. Here's what the college states. Quote, the ultrasound-derived fetal abdominal diameter bipyramidal diameter difference has been evaluated as a predictor for shoulder dystocia and has not been found to be clinically useful. The few studies examining this measure have been hindered by their retrospective nature, difficulties in measuring the fetal abdominal outline at advanced gestational age, and the limited number of cases of shoulder dystocia and the lack of applicability to the general obstetrical population, end quote. So, if you don't like my take on it, that's all right. You're not going to hurt my feelings. It's ACOG's stance. As of right now, that's why we use the aggregate estimated fetal weight of 4,500 with diabetes, 5,000 without, because of the anthropomorphic fat accumulation as a whole with or without diabetes, respectfully. Okay, so with diabetes, 4,500 without 5,000, but the individual markers, it's interesting as part of patient education, but in and of itself, right now, according to the college, either as standalone markers, like a big abdominal circumference, more than, say, 35 centimeters, uh, or differences in millimeters, whether it's 26 or 50, right now, cannot be used or cannot be justified to gauge management in and of itself.
All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. We have covered the formulas to try to predict shoulder dystocia. Unfortunately, they cannot predict shoulder dystocia. That's the reality. So just be vigilant, be alert, look for those labor cues, look at the patient's history, look for that slow descent at second stage, and just be ready, anticipate, have your team there for McRoberts and appropriate suprapubic pressures, and guys, we'll do what we can. Risk stratify, that's important. Look for those risk factors that ACOG says to do. But otherwise, trying to do independent and or combination of ultrasonographic markers of the baby's uh, body. Interesting, but just not ready for prime time. All right, podcast family, as always, we're thankful for you. We're glad you're part of our podcast community. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.